Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. On today's episode, we welcome New York Times bestseller, Deborah Crombie, author of 19 number one hits and her latest page-turning mystery thriller, A Killing of Innocence. Deborah, welcome to The Thriller Zone. So nice to have you. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. And you know what? It's always nice to have the mystery suspense genre represented on the Thriller Zone. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because we're primarily thrillers. However, if I don't know if you agree with this or not, I think thrillers and suspense and mystery can meld into one another. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's tone and structure, but I think you definitely can have thriller elements in a mystery. Yeah. And mystery <laughs> elements in a thriller, obviously. 100%. 100%. And who doesn't like a good old-fashioned New York Times bestseller? <laughs> no one, I hope. Yeah, I mean, all right, we're going to be celebrating your 19th book, Killing of the of and A Killing of Innocence, which is a spectacular read. Um, but first, I'd like to discuss the series. I want to go back a little piece because this is this is number nineteen, which tells me you know what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe sometimes. Deborah, the secret is out. You know what you're doing. All right, I'd like to know where and when did uh, Detective Superintendent Duncan Kincaid, which is one of my favorite names of all time, and Sergeant. Is it Gemma or Gemma? Gemma. Gemma. Good. I was going to say with Gemma Janes. Um, where did they Where did they come from uh, and when did they come from? I mean, this had to have been, what, early, late 90s? Yeah, actually late 80s, end of 80s, because I sold this book in February of 1992, and uh, well, a share in death, the first one, and it was published in February of 93. So when Killing of Innocence came out, um, it was actually the 30th anniversary of the publication of my first book, which just is a little scary. <laughs> it's like, how did this even happen? Uh, never expect to be expected to be doing this for 30 years. Um, so are you ready? Are you ready for a long story then? Well, yeah, because and actually, are you looking over my shoulder at my notes? Because I'm, I, I just, the next question is, did you ever imagine this series would be both this long and this successful? No. Um, so I was married to a Scott for 13 years and we had lived in Edinburgh and we had lived in Chester and we had moved back to the States or to the States for him. Um, and I was really, really homesick for the UK. And we went over on holiday, as you say, in, in Britain, not on vacation. Yeah. And uh, every year, if we could. And one year, we were in Yorkshire. Uh, I was a huge James Harriet fan. 
and had been several times to Thirsk, which is the little Yorkshire market town where the real James Harriet lived and worked. And we were staying in Thirsk, and we were driving around in Yorkshire on one of the little B roads up in the Yorkshire Moors, and we saw a country house. It was a Georgian country house, and it had been converted into a timeshare. And I said, can we go look at that? That looks really interesting. And so we did. We toured it, and we got brochures, as you say. And I got an idea for, for a British traditional British mystery. Um, and partly because I was really, really homesick for the UK. And I thought, well, if I can't be there in person, I will be there in my head. And I thought, well, I've got this, this timeshare and I could do this updated country house mystery, but I would need a detective. And uh, I, I feel a little anti-feminist when I say that Duncan came first. And he just kind of really was immediately there. I mean, I, I knew who he was, where he came from, which is a, a market town in Cheshire near where we lived in Cheshire called Nantwich. And, um, and I heard his voice in my head. And I don't mean speaking voice. I mean how he thought and how he approached things. And, um, and then I thought, well... And also, because this was like 1989, and if I wanted to have a Scotland Yard detective that was senior enough to go around and investigate crimes in places outside of London, um, it would probably need to be a man, because there weren't female senior officers in the Met at that time, at that sort of rank. Um, and then, but that's just kind of my excuse because Duncan was Duncan. <laughs> uh, and then I thought it would be interesting for him to have a female colleague, that I would want that female colleague to be someone uh, very different in personality, different background, different circumstances. And so out of that came Gemma, who was a younger single mom from uh, a part of, of North London called Leighton. And she's trying to juggle her job and taking care of her two-year-old son. And um, it's a challenge. And I wanted to write about women who were dealing with those sort of circumstances. So that is, that is how the two of them came into being. It's, and are we talking about the same Harriet as uh, All Creatures Great and Small? Yes. All-time favorite television show. Oh, I I loved the books. I loved the TV show. We went several times. He used Alf White, which was his real name. He used to uh, uh, sign books. He had like one morning a week in his surgery, which is which is what they call their their clinic, uh, where he people could come in and get their books signed. And so I have some signed James Harriet books. <sighs> And uh, so obviously a huge fan. And actually in that timeshare, my fictional timeshare in that first novel, A Share in Death, the suites are named after James Harriet's characters. There's a Siegfried suite and a Tristan suite. <laughs> you know, uh, my wife and I have gotten, uh, we really enjoyed the new season, the new episodes yeah. of, you know, the more light. But I ran across the original ones, which she had never seen, and I'm turning her onto those. And f when you get embroiled 
in those original ones. There's something so, and, and, and possibly it's perhaps it's having to do with the time. It's all innocence and so sweet and there's no real complication, but those original characters are forever burned in my brain. And when I watch the new episodes, the new seasons, I have to kind of, I always think of the old original ones, you know. I've kind of gotten past that. Yeah, I kind of see them as separate entities. I think the yeah. original series was funnier. Um, yeah. And the new one has a whole lot more character development. But um, And I like the fact that in the new series, James is Scottish because he was Scottish. And I actually have the uh, Nick Ralph the new narration, audio narration, because James should sound Scottish. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Timothy was wonderful, but not Scottish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, back to uh, a killing of innocence. Do you how do you have people asking you, especially when you get around to nineteen? You know, you you pass a dozen, and people start saying things like, "Well." How long's Duncan and, and Gemma going to stick around? Are they going to, if you got another one, if you got two more, you're going to do this, you're going to retire with these? You know, do you, do you get a lot of that? Eek. <laughs> I do. And, you know, questions I can't answer, don't want to answer. Well, I, yeah. I do actually. I am working on book 20. I have another book on this contract and then hope, you know, knock wood, uh, there will be more because I'm certainly not tired of them. And yeah. I did very early on make a decision to float the series in time. Um, I was a big P.D. James fan, and yeah. I, so I thought about this, you know, that in the Dalgleish novels, every book is current, and the characters age some, but they don't age in real time. Yeah. Because, you, you, you know, you have to adopt some sort of convention if you want to write a series. Although I had no idea that it would be such a long-running series, but I didn't want to end up like Ian Rankin with having to had to retire Rebus because he aged um, out of the series, and I didn't want to be like Sue Grafton, where you were sort of stuck in a certain time yeah. period. So yeah. I, I chose that sort of floating outside. So the. Even though I've been writing these books for 30 years, the characters have only aged five or six years. <laughs> but every book is current to the time it was written, if that makes sure. sense. And I think it's, you know, why why does anybody have a problem with that? You know, you hear people, oh, but you're not doing it in real time. And I'm like, it's fiction. Okay, let's start there. Yeah. And uh, uh, Deborah gets to make the rules however she wants to. <laughs> Those are my rules. Yeah, and I don't. I I think it's uh, erroneous to think. Well, these should be uh, aging in real time. Why? If we had the opportunity, we wouldn't do it. No. Yeah. Well, and now I really want to slow the time down because of the kids. Because I don't want the kids to grow up and be gone. Yeah, I'm going to make an a. a, a uh, I'm going to admit something. So I got turned on to you, introduced to you from uh, one of your publicists, I think. And I had not heard of you, so I apologize up front, but I uh, am a, a, a new fan. And so I see the cover. I'm thinking British. Oh, lovely. Right. 
British pub food. Lovely. Can't wait. I read about you. I see your photograph. You're standing in front of an iron gate. And I'm like, oh, I cannot wait. Yeah, that's Eaton Square. Yeah. It's a great photograph, by the way. Thank you. Courtesy of my friend, good friend, Steve Olathorne, who is a wonderful, wonderful British photographer. We took those in October. Well, it's not 20 years years old. Which no one knows our earlier conversation. We'll leave it that way. Sometimes, folks, I'd like to say, when you're an author, keep your photographs up to date within at least a couple of years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, so I'm seeing this. I'm thinking. And again, I didn't know you were from Texas. So I'm like, oh, I can't wait to hear her accent. I love British accents. Yay, yay. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, she's from Dallas. Then she grew up around, like, north of Dallas. Okay, well, she's not going to have any kind of British accent whatsoever. <laughs> so I don't, like, I don't like being asked to read uh, yeah. at, you know, podcasts or events or, or whatever, because people will be expecting that British accent, and I may hear it in my head, but I can't do it in person. I mean, I could, but you don't want to hear it. And, you know, while we're on that topic, uh, you you nail that vernacular and that influence and that thinking so well. There's no way in the world, as I'm reading this book, and, and take this as a compliment, I'd never imagine you being from Texas. It's so it's so spot on. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just I think I kind of live in an alternate universe in my head. I said, I've lived there, and I was married to a Scot, and I spend as much time there as I can, and uh, can, hear that Texas accent creeping in. Y'all too. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm always in, in British space in my head. Y'all come on up to house and get yourself something to eat, and we'll be ready to go in a minute. <laughs> now, that's my upbringing, which is North Carolina. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which Definitely. is a little bit. It, it slides every once in a while. It slides every once in a while. Yeah. All right. I want to ask this question. Tell me what it's like. Put me in Deborah's shoes. You're shooting out of the gate, gaining high praise with both the Agathy and the McCavity nominations. I mean, on your first novel, I I had someone recently trying to think of who it was brad taylor his very first book dropped on the new york times bestseller list and and for a lot of my listeners who are up and coming and aspiring writers we go how does that happen i mean you know that's a dream come true so tell me what that feels like to shoot out of the gate with that kind of recognition totally godsmacked (laughs) i you know i was so thrilled to actually get a book and my first novel published um and i sold it within about six months of finishing it um so that was shocking enough and i was certainly not prepared for the kind of notice that it got and then you know and then there was a huge load of expectations going forward which is kind of scary do you find yourself just going well, here's the question I want to ask, and I think this is perfectly fair. 19 in, you're working on your 20th. Yeah. The rules are different now. The The landscape has changed dramatically. Can you imagine trying to enter the force now? No. 
No, I really, and not with the kind of books I write. I, I was very lucky when I started out. I was bought by a wonderful editor at Charles Scribner named Suzanne Kirk, and she saw that the books had a potential to grow an audience, um, but you know they they weren't the kind of material that would be instant blockbusters make into a uh, you know bought for movie rights or TV series, and so she she bought three books. And which did give the series a chance to get started. But I think I was just really, really fortunate to have found an editor who liked my voice and um, was willing to give the books a, a shot. I'm going to ask a question here that makes me sound like I'm a complete idiot, which is not going to be a stretch for you to have to work with. <clears throat> so you're referencing that an editor bought your book. We often, uh, in my naivete says, Oh, I need to go to an agent An agent contacts a publisher, a publisher contacts an editor. So, uh, according to what you just said, it sounds like you circumvented well, or I, no, not entirely. I, well, it was interesting. I had started, I became a member of mystery writers of America okay. and I attended workshops and when I had finished the novel, I had a chance to submit the book to an editor at Avon who I had met uh, at the workshop and thinking, oh, this is great. This editor is going to read my book. And, you know, and then months went by, no response. I did another writer's conference. I met another editor from Avon who is now actually a senior vice president at my publisher. Um, and the second editor said, well, if the first editor, if the first editor is not interested, I'd like to have a look at it. Do you have an agent? And I said, no, because I hadn't gotten any response from all the, the queries I had sent out to agents. And he said, let me recommend someone. And so he did. And I con took me about a week to get up the nerve to make this phone call to this very scary literary agent in New York. And I like to joke now that we've been together longer than I've been married to either husband. <laughs> um, Brilliant. But she's, you know, and but because I had had some interest from those editors, she was willing to take me on and she shopped the book, which is what you say in the business, meaning your agent sends it out to certain editors that they think would be interested. Um, and we we had a lot of nice response, uh, but I ended up not with either one of the first editors who had looked at the book, but with Suzanne Kirk at Scribner. Um, so that was how that process worked. Wow. I love it. Yeah, I always love hearing how they how these stories happen, because, you know, we always wonder, oh, was it? right place, right time? Was it luck? Was it massive talent? Was it a combination of all of them? Was it somebody they knew? And, you know, every single one of those aspects are all completely legitimate in and of themselves. You know, the phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know works. It's right well, place, right time. But you have to make the effort 
to have people that you know. I mean, if I've yeah. been willing to join organizations and get out and go to those workshops and submit things for editors or agents to look at, I wouldn't have had the connections to sell the book. And that begs the question, if you, and I know this is slightly uh, hard to put your head around maybe, but if you had, if you, if you could kind of wipe the slate clean and do it all over again, because I know you have the passion for writing, you impress me as being one of those people that probably from a very early age, you wanted to write. So let's just notwithstanding, let's just say that you went to start at it today. Would you feel confident that you, um, would be able to achieve success? Do you, do you think that the method by which you would uh, uh, go after uh, success would be similar to how you've done it? I don't know. The la- it's, that's an interesting question. I mean, the landscape has changed with social media, and so the vehicles might be slightly different as far as, you know, maybe joining Facebook groups or but I still don't think you can beat the in person you know the the joining your local MWA or sisters in crime chapters or going to conferences going to workshops putting yourself in a position where you actually meet editors and agents um, yeah. and then the more people you know the better I was talking to a, who has become a good friend of mine, um, Chris Haughty. We were at the Thriller Fest this past year, and uh, we walked away going uh, that really one of the biggest pieces of magic, I'll just call it that, one of the aspects of magic, what you've just said, is being there, rubbing shoulders, hanging out with, meeting over cocktails or lunches or dinners or whatever, that face-to-face camaraderie where your defenses are down and you're enthusiasm is up and everybody's kind of swimming in the same soup makes for a real magical experience. Yeah. And those connections, I am still friends with people I met in like the first conferences that I ever went to. And those connections can make a, well, they not only can make a big difference in your career, but they just make a big difference in your, your life as a writer. Um, to have that camaraderie and that support from other people in the business. Because, you know, we, we, we sit at home and <laughs> glued to our keyboards and staring at the screen all day, most of yeah. us. So yeah. you really need that social support. I'm going to take a little detour because I told you straight up, right up front that I was going to do this. It's too little. It's, it's, you're going to think to yourself, where? Do, what does this have to do with writing, David? But... I know that you, uh, I have a feeling you write uh, a good amount at home. You still live in McKinney, Texas, right? I do. Okay. So I did a little bit of stalking on you. I mean, st- looking, uh, 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 admiring. Maybe that's a better word. And I see that you live in a 1905 Texas craftsman bungalow. Now, I'm um, I'm an architect design nerd. And yeah. I love I love that bungalow look. And uh, you, you put all the photographs up there, you know, I, I, I'm assuming it was an Instagram feed. So I felt perfectly fine uh, peeking yeah. in through your back window. And that is a lovely home and the grounds just gorgeous. Oh, I'm looking at my garden right now and just thinking, oh, spring has sprung into so much work. <laughs> but 
we have, you know, it's very English cottage garden and lots of perennials. And so right now it looks very drab, but in a few weeks it's going to be coming back to life. Yeah. But yeah, 1905. So um, <sighs> lots of work. Lots of yep. Work. I'll tell you, if I was uh, out that way, I'd, I'd beg you to pour a iced tea or cocktail of choice, and we sit, sit on the on big... My, sit on my porch swings and oh. the traffic go by. Yeah. All right, one more side note. Uh, I notice you have German Shepherds. Why that breed? I'm a big dog fan, so I'm just curious. What made you choose uh, that breed? When my husband and I first got married, we had uh, a Cocker Spaniel. I had had a Cocker Spaniel, which you notice, you will notice I've given Gemma and, Gemma and Duncan a, a, an English Cocker. Yeah. And, uh, but when he passed away, my husband said he had wanted a German Shepherd since he was about three years old. And so we got a German Shepherd puppy and we had two and now we have another two and they're, they're getting on a bit, but they're wonderful dogs. All right. I just, I like digging down that stuff because it, it fascinates me. Okay. Now here's a question as we kind of start to wrap, uh, bef because you're such a prolific writer, I'd like to ask a couple of questions about the process. And I know that given so many listeners and aspiring writers, they love that inside scoop on trying to reach success. So first of all, and I, I referenced this earlier, are, were you always one of those folks that said, you know what, early on, this is what I want to do. Come hell or high water, I want to write. No, no, <laughs> just to, just to surprise you. No, oh. <laughs> I wasn't really, you know, I was a biology major in college. That's, that's right. Uh, yeah. I, um, I did, I, I was a voracious reader from the time I was little bitty and my grandmother had been a school teacher and she taught me to read by the time I was about four, I think. And, but I, it never really occurred to me that I would write books. Um, actually, when I was about 14, I think I started writing poetry. Um, and I wrote a lot of poetry, but I just never, because I love language. You know, I just, I love that creating images and putting words together and, you know, the getting the cadence right and sure. all that stuff. But it just never occurred to me to write a novel. Um I did take um, a creative writing course after I, like a, a community college creative writing course after I graduated from college. And a professor, a teacher, I wouldn't call him a professor, actually said, oh, you know, you should just give this up. <laughs> and uh, I didn't write anything else for about 10 years, I guess. Until I, and I had written a couple of little sort of literary short stories that I had sent in to various places and not had any success with. And so I hadn't really written anything seriously until I wrote uh, that first novel, A Sharon Death. I would like to take all the people who say disparaging comments like that and hang them up by their ankles. You and me, you and me both. Um, I was very blessed, very fortunate to have a mother who was not only a big fan of mine, but exceptionally influential in supporting my creative side and nurturing that passion for art, writing, words, theatrics, etc. And 
I really do believe, especially in the formative years, would it be so tough for you to just be encouraging and say nice things because you never know how one's passions are going to be directed. So I, that's a pet peeve. Well, of mine. What sort of damage you can do by being so negative. I have to think now that, and I can't even remember the guy's name, but that, you know, he must've been a failed, a failed writer <laughs> to have, you know, enjoyed dashing somebody else's creativity. And on this same point, I, because of how encouragement is important, do you have, who's been some of your, um, strong influences, encouragers along the way that said, you know, if it, if it weren't for so-and-so, and maybe it was just a passing comment said, oh, that's really unique. Have you had a fair amount of that? Gosh, family. Uh, had a, I had a wonderful teacher in third grade and sixth grade, and um, I actually turned out to be dyslexic, and from about sixth grade on, I really, really struggled in school. Um, but my parents were always incredibly supportive, and uh, I also had an uncle who was a, a very well-known Texas writer named A.C. Green. And uh, he was a historian, novelist, um, and uh, newspaper columnist. And he was very encouraging. He read my poetry when I was a teenager and gave me, you know, very positive and encouraging critiques. And then when I finally did... Uh, have a novel and get published, he was just incredibly proud of me. Wow. See, we need more of that. Yeah. Uh, as we get ready to wrap, I do this fun little game uh, I'd love to do with you because you strike me as being somebody who will play along with me. And trust me, it's called Rapid Fire Questions, and it is not oh. Jeopardy, so don't sweat your palms. It's so easy. You want to play? Sure. Easy peasy. Number one, preferred method keyboard or pen and paper better both of course you're gonna say that deborah no what is your best one where do you where are you most prolific oh keyboard okay speed yeah yeah your handwriting is bad as mine journals and fountain pens and all that jazz oh wait a minute let's take a little diversion here uh speaking of which on your instagram i ran across B uh, Benu, Benu, Benu on your Instagram, uh, fancy fountain pens. Oh, oh, show me some of that. I love fountain pens. That would be some of these. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Yeah, baby. I I'm embarrassed by how many of these pens I have now. Actually. All right. First of all, you should never be embarrassed for something that is in your, Oh, look at this one. What is that's one of my favorites there. Ooh, open that thing up. Pull that top off. Let me see the quill. Yeah. Look at that. See, those are, that's a lost art, man. That is beautiful. And uh, while I'm. I don't have pretty handwriting for all this passion for fountain pens. <laughs> but these are actually, it's a company called Bennu and uh, Bennu. it's a little mom and pop company that were out of Moscow. And um, when Putin declared war on Ukraine, they got out within about two weeks, and they are now producing in Armenia, which is just great. All their, all their uh, fans were so worried about them, but they're okay. 
Well, first of all, good on you. And uh, we're going to include that on our information on our website because I want to support them. Anytime I find local artisans who really are living their passion. So it's Benu Penn. And on Instagram, it's at Ben Open, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But also uh, another thing I love, and oh my God, my wife laughs at me because I'm honey, do you not think you have enough notebooks and journals? I know, but I'm saving this one for this and saving this one for that. So Iona handcrafted Iona. books, yeah. Iona, those are gorgeous while we're taking this tangent. Um, oh, they are just absolutely gorgeous. And I don't know if you've looked at her website, but she has a great story about how she started making those journals in Italy and apprentice to a traditional journal maker. Um, and she is just a terrific, terrific, creative, lovely, lovely woman. Yeah. Handcrafted leather paper. And then of course it's perfect for these fountain pens. But anyway, we'll, we'll include that information at the end. Uh, we were still in the middle of this game. Yeah. Where were we? Okay. Oh, preferred place, noisy coffee shop or quiet library. Noisy coffee shop. I'm with you. I like that distraction of white noise. Preferred practice, hit a certain number of words or pages or just wing it. I shoot for certain number of words a day. I, I mean, I think I used to count pages and now I count words. Doesn't make a difference. Yeah. As long as you're doing it. Better to have a goal. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, like my dad used to say, my, my listeners know this. You aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time, son. Yeah. Uh, Nora Roberts famously, I may be misquoting, said, bad pages are better than no pages. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. Number four, you and your husband are taking a non-working vacay, something you're probably not very familiar with. Are you likely to read something completely different or stay within your genre? I might read something completely different. Right now I'm reading Hemingway's Collected Letters. Okay. Finally, what is your favorite motivation music that you may play while writing? Mm, I don't play music when I'm writing. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I think my, my brain doesn't have enough channels. I find it actually, if there's music in a coffee shop, yeah. I'm fine, but okay. if it's just me and the computer, I find it really distracting. So, yeah, as my mother used to say, that's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> Don't give me too much information at once. I'm concentrating over here. Although her voice did not sound like that. All right. I like to close with this, Deborah. It is something I ask all of my guests. Um, it is their best piece of writing advice. And because, again, of your prolific output, your exceptional work ethic, I'd like to know yours. And it doesn't have to be just one. You can boil it down to one or two or even three. But basically, everybody walks away with, well, this is kind of, I'm stalling so you can think about it. This is how I formulated my process. And if I was teaching a class today or sharing with a friend, I would say this is my best piece of writing advice. Well, the first part would be read. Yeah. Um, helps, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you would be surprised at how many people think they want to have a best-selling novel, but they don't read uh, and read a lot and all kinds of different things and genres. And, um, and the other would be, you just have to, again, you know, bad pages are better than no pages. You just have to sit down and do it and have confidence in yourself. 
Um, if you don't write it, you won't sell it. <laughs> it sounds so simple, doesn't it? David, you don't write it. You can't sell it. <laughs> All right, folks, if you want to learn more, visit DebraCrombie.com. You can follow her on Twitter as I now do, and I hope she'll follow me back. Hint, hint. Uh, on the same, oh. uh, Debra. Yes, please do, Deborah Crombie. And uh, on Instagram, Deborah.crombie, where you're going to find out her love of uh, fancy, pantsy, fancy fountain pens and those handcrafted journals. And that information will be below. And the book, once again, A Killing of Innocence, it is available now, and we want you to grab it. Um, I'm very impressed with your output, your talents. You're so gracious and so kind. Big thanks to your handsome hubby for hanging out and well working on that microphone for us. I'm glad he was here. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and I will uh, look forward to seeing you again. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.